Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1. It's verses 16 through 32. Romans 1, 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may, may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking this morning at verses 17 through 19, your old way of life. And I titled it this way on purpose. I want us to think of this as a message that is to us. And it's not about 
what we just about who we were. It's not just about them out there. This is our old way of life that we'll look at. Ephesians chapter 4. The word impenetrable is good if it applies to your armor in battle. After being heartbroken, some people wish that their heart was impenetrable. Because a heart of stone doesn't feel pain or anything else for that matter. We're going to see today that outside of Christ, people do have hearts of stone. And, of course, we're talking spiritually. Their hearts are impenetrable. They can't feel the convicting work of God's Word. When we were kids, my brothers and I rarely wore shoes in summertime... And we would run around everywhere barefoot. And after a few weeks, we were even able to run across our driveway, which was paved with broken oyster shells. And, of course, I grew up in South Louisiana, so oysters were in great supply. And and so we would use that to pave. If you've ever, you've probably never stepped on an oyster shell. But if your feet were not very calloused, it would cut you open pretty quickly. But. That was no problem for us because we ran around barefoot all the time. The unbeliever's heart is like that. It is calloused toward God and His Word. In other words, when they encounter God's Word, they, they don't feel a thing. Some of you are still hardened toward God. You don't feel the convicting work of His Word. But those of us who have trusted in Christ... God's Word does convict us of sin. We do feel it when it convicts us. Now, that doesn't mean that we are without sin now. We still have plenty of battles to fight. But we also, as we've been seeing in the previous section, have plenty of resources at our disposal. We have the spiritual gifts We have God's Word. We have God the Holy Spirit. But we still, with all of that, we still need to be warned. We need to be warned regularly, and Scripture does do that faithfully. And the warning for us this morning is this. Since you no longer have the believer's spiritual, the unbeliever's spiritual nature, since you no longer have the unbeliever's spiritual nature, stop behaving like them. That's what Paul is saying here. And he says this in in similar ways in other passages as well. Stop behaving like them. Now, let's think about where we're at in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, what Paul is doing here is he's beginning to apply all of the rich doctrinal truth that he laid out first in the first three chapters. And so he summarizes that exhortation in Chapter 4, verse 1, saying that we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then what Paul is doing now is he breaks that down into several different ways in which he tells us how more specifically to walk. So the umbrella term, walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And then I'm going to tell you how to do that. Okay, We already have looked at the first one, walk in unity. 
Now we begin the second one, walk in righteousness. Now, that won't become apparent right off the bat, at least not real clearly, until we work our way through this last half of chapter 4. But he's talking about walking in righteousness, or in holiness, rather. Holiness, righteousness, he uses both of those terms. So, walking in holiness. Now, let's think about this from an outline standpoint, so you can see on the slides, uh, the slide. The first two points... If we go ahead, thank you. Uh, first two points are the two halves of the book. The first half, what I was talking about, chapters 1 through 3, discover the vastness of God's love in calling you. And you can see there's that tie, the idea of this call. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It ties those two together because the, the book is a cohesive unit. The first half of the book, discover the vastness of God's love in calling you. And then the second half of the book... Walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. That calling we've been talking about. Walk in a manner worthy of it. In other words, apply all that we've learned. And so as he breaks that down into various ways we are to walk, we saw chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, walk in unity. Now we're starting 17 to 32, which is to walk in holiness. Okay, let's. we're going to now break down that, the first part of it at the very bottom of the slide there, what we're going to look at today, don't conduct yourselves the way unbelievers do. So this is going to be in these first three verses we're going to tackle today, 17 through 19. So don't conduct yourselves the way unbelievers do. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to then take up and start our way through the rest of chapter 4. Conduct yourselves according to your new way of life. So he's giving them the negative, what not to do right now. And... And so he's got, he has to lay that out. We're going to see why that's important. Then he's going to say, okay, what are you going to put in its place? And that's going to be the rest of chapter 4. And, and then it's going to then lead us into the rest of the book as well. So let's look first now at the exhortation before us. Number one, don't walk like unbelievers. Don't walk like unbelievers. <clears throat> so Paul begins by telling us what not to do. And when he uses the word therefore here at the beginning of this verse, what he's doing is he's actually saying, okay, in your minds, go back to what I started in chapter 4, verse 1, because I'm resuming that instruction. And so if you flip back there, chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he then tells us the first way to walk, walk in unity. And now he's he's going back, okay, let me go back to my umbrella term, walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Okay, the second way you do that is walk in holiness. And that's what we're starting in this morning. So then verse 17, to carry forward from that, from, from verse 1, this I say, therefore, and affirm together in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So he's what he's saying is that walking in the way that unbelievers walk, and that's how he's using the, the word Gentiles here, because most of these people are still Gentiles. They're just saved Gentiles. <clears throat> to walk in the way of unbelievers is not worthy of their calling. And that's the, the idea. And he says, I'm giving you this with the Lord's authority. He's in the Lord. 
And so he calls them, stop walking like Gentiles. Why? And this now takes us to our second point. This is why. You no longer have the unbeliever's nature. It's why you should stop walking like them. You don't have their nature anymore. You used to, but you don't now, those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ. Again, verse 17, this I say, therefore, and affirm together in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, <clears throat> excluded, excuse me, <clears throat> excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. So what Paul does first in verses 17 and 18 is he discusses their spiritual status. This is who they are, what they are. He talks about their corrupted mind, how that's a key part of who they are, unbelievers, who who they are. And then in verse 19, he's going to show the, the behavior that flows from that spiritual nature, that status that they currently have, the the unbelievers. Well, you can picture the Christian life as a battle of trying to bring more and more of our life, our experience, everything about who we are under the banner of Christ. And so you think in terms of a battle. And so you've got the, the banner of this this side of, of, um, of the war. And, and so we're trying to bring as much from our own experience, everything from our life under that banner of Christ. And, and so that's one way you can look at it. That's the nature of our daily experience. You know, too many of us go through life and we, we go through our whole day without even really thinking about Jesus and the fact that his banner has been, has been planted in the ground firmly and he wants us to work to bring everything under that. And so we go through our day without giving that any thought at all. And so it's helpful for us to try to envision our spiritual life, our daily walk as bringing all of who we are under Christ's banner. And that's what he's going to be talking about now as he calls us to walk in holiness. You see, but in order for us to walk in holiness, he could have jumped ahead and said, okay, here here are the things you should do. He's going to do that. But he says, first, what we have to do is you've got to stop doing the ungodly things that you used to do, and unfortunately, you still sometimes do. And so we've got to get those, get rid of those, to put those to death first. Now, as I said, the Ephesian believers were mostly Gentiles. And so he says, okay, thinking in those terms, you know, most of you I'm talking to, this is how you used to be. Now, the Jews were that way too. They they just had a a different look, a different face on their sins, okay? Uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about them in a little bit, but... Before they came to Christ, they lived in a way that was normal for unbelieving Gentiles. And so Paul calls that a walk. A walk is it just pictures a person's lifestyle. And we find that that's a concept that's used in Old and New Testaments, where you have, you know, God's word is a lamp to my feet. In other words, in this path. It talks about the path of righteousness. And, and how I walk on that path describes my lifestyle. And so he says, to make holiness your way of life, you must first stop the old ungodly ways. 
And as I mentioned earlier, this passage is written to believers. It's written to believers. And so what that means is, this message is not for the person sitting next to you. I know what you were thinking, like, oh boy, I wish, are you listening, honey? Right? Son, daughter, mom, dad, right? This this passage is not written for the person next to you. This passage is, this message is is for you. Passage is for you and me. I'm, I'm part of that you, right? This is for us, not them. And what I'm going to do as we work our way through this to, to help us keep that in our minds and to know what we should do about it is I'm going to suggest ways in which we can do what he's saying, to stop doing this old thing, this old way. And, and so I'm going to present those to you. And I'm not going to give you those points of application in a slide uh, on here today. But what I'm going to do is... I've given you a slide in what I've sent out to everybody, and so it's on the slides, but it's not going to be here uh, because I'm, just, I'm going to be telling you that. But I thought it'd be helpful to, to, for you to have that. You can go back over it and say, okay, yeah, these are the things that I need to be doing so that I'm not doing these, okay, that we're going to be talking about, okay? The unbeliever's lifestyle is first characterized by the futility of their mind. That's what he says here at the end of verse 7. This is the way they walk in the futility of their mind. That word futility, it describes emptiness, uh, having no purpose or the wrong purpose, for example. Think Ecclesiastes, what's the word there? The, the The word everybody always thinks about in Ecclesiastes, right? What is it? Vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Right? That's what this this word is, right? And this word was used, uh, the Greek word, to translate that word vanity in Ecclesiastes. So it's emptiness. And it's a futility of mind. Mind here is the Greek word nous. Uh, just a, a basic word about mind. It's our ability to think, our ability to understand. And so going back to Ecclesiastes, think about some of the things that that Solomon talked about. He said, ah, oh, I thought I would set my mind to pursuing this. And I, and I tried to maximize my, my you know, pleasure in, in, the, in the intellectual sense more than anything. In this, you know, I'd build great buildings and I would do all, the, you know. But what he discovered is that those things in and of themselves were all vanity, empty. Nothingness, purposeless. Why? Because the way that he had pursued them, it did not serve the original purpose of the human mind. The original purpose of the human mind was to know God and his truth. Okay? And so, if you, you pour yourself, you, everything about you, you pour it into your job, your work, whatever that is, or your school, or your relationships, or, and you do that, it's going to be empty. Purposeless, pointless, if it's done apart from God and apart from using that to pursue Him. Now, you're saying, okay, John, I'm not ever to use my mind for anything else. Just, you know, it's, you know I've just got to be studying the Bible all day long. And No, 
we already use our minds for other things. God has gifted us that way to be able to use them. We should use them for learning. We should use them in our work. We should even use them in doing the things we enjoy. We can use our minds for those things. But what is your chief pursuit? See, and that's where Solomon, he concludes at the end of the book, Ecclesiastes, he said, this is what our chief pursuit should be. Fear God and keep His commandments. And you remember that he says some other things there that I'm I'm glad he said. It's like, enjoy your life. Enjoy the food and drink God has given you. You know, husbands, enjoy your wife. Enjoy what God has given you. But don't let that be your chief pursuit. All of those things are a part of you pursuing God and pursuing His Word. Applying your mind to understanding God and His Word. That's what fearing God and keeping His commandments is. And so I ask you and me... Is the pursuit of God and His Word the chief use of your mind? Is that the chief use? I don't mean, like, do you spend the most of your hours on that? When you think about how you're doing your work, how you're doing your school, how you're interacting with each other, are you bringing biblical principles into that? To say, okay, so as I do my work... I want to be honoring God. I want to be doing it in a way that pleases Him and testifies to Him. In my relationship, am I doing this? Am I pursuing this relationship because I want to honor God in it? Or even if it's if it's something, a hobby that you have. It doesn't mean you have to spiritualize everything to make it okay. You can have these things, that, you know, Stephen was talking about everything. So it, in life is really mundane. Can you take all of that mundane and say, but it's about God? There aren't these big, deep, spiritual things that happen to us all the time. Once in a while they do, but not all the time. Can I make the mundane about God? About me pursuing God? Can I do these things? So, like, you know, you're going to... I've been here before. One time we were... uh, Our family were going to go on a vacation... And we were really looking forward to it and building it up with the girls. And uh, this is going to be great. And and so the day before we leave, my boss called me in and said, well, one of your employees has reported you and, you know, blah, 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 you know. I'm like, this couldn't wait until I got back, you know. And, and just in case you're wondering, it, he was obviously wrong, but um, it wasn't me. I mean, you know, I was like, <clears throat> no, it... But at first, I was just so upset with my boss. Because he didn't need to tell me that right then. It could have waited. But he did. And so I was, you know, I was pretty grumpy. And we start the vacation. We get there. And it's supposed to be, you know. And the funny thing is, we got there. And guess who was also at that same place? And I'm like, right? Because I wasn't bringing God and everything about Him and His truth to bear on this. I should should have thought in terms of this is something that we can legitimately enjoy. And I need to enjoy it to God's glory. Now, you know, the Holy Spirit did, you know, and okay, okay, I get it. 
and so I was kind and tried to be godly to this person, you know, as we met him and his family there. And, you know, but, you know, quickly he didn't want to, hey, let's hang out together. You know, you know, okay, that's not going to work. No. But, no, that's what I'm talking about. Everything needs to be transformed, not to where it is a spiritual thing per se, but that the mundane is to God's glory, and I do it in a way that glorifies God. You know, so are you are you seeking something other than God in those pursuits that you apply your mind to, your work, your school, your relationships? Are you seeking happiness in those and not in God? Are you seeking your your value in them rather than God? That's what we're talking about. So, why do unbelievers use their minds for vain purposes? It isn't necessarily a bad purpose. You know, if you, well, I, I go to work and I work hard so I can provide for my family. That's a good purpose. But it can be vain when you're doing it apart from God. Why do they do that? Well, Paul says next that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. So as we continue on there, they walk in the futility of their mind into verse 17 and then verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding. Understandings from another word that has to do with mind, dianoia. And it, it's built off of that word noose that we were just talking about, mind, but with the preposition dia, through, so through the mind. And it's talking about our thinking and reasoning process, the way that we think about things. So you see, it's not just that we, we bring God in to just our general thinking, but in, in our thinking processes. And so, back to my illustration, you know, when I was, you know, grumbling about, okay, why did my boss have to tell me this beforehand, and why did God have to ordain that this guy shows up, the place where we're going, and I, I needed to be bringing those thought processes, and eventually God did work to make me bring them under His Word, so that I started thinking about them rightly. It's those thinking processes. Why do I... Okay, why, why, why did this happen? Why, why couldn't it... You know. No. God ordained this. So this is His will for me. How then should I live here in this? This thing. God created man's understanding to be illumined by truth. And that's what we have on the slide. God... It created our minds to be illumined by truth, His truth. Talking about His truth, biblical truth. But sin has corrupted man's understanding, and so it became darkened, it became clouded. And so, on the slide, what I'm trying to show is that, so at the bottom, on the left, you have the Word of God there, and it's it's giving off its light, if you will. And then I've got this lamp that's basically channeling that light. And the rays of light coming down from that lamp are the various things. Think about Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, and how they, they talk about you know God's precepts, His instructions, and and all these different ways of talking about God's Word. And as, he, as those psalm writers talk so beautifully about God's Word and how it, <clears throat> how it is a, <clears throat> how it's a benefit to us, <clears throat> and how it illumines our mind. But then on the right hand side, sin has impacted that, and this is where the unbeliever is. 
So you still, this God's Word is still there. It's still giving off the illumination. But as it, if you will, was to be channeled to, to then illumine their mind, you know, and, and so those little the cogs are still there for unbelievers in their mind. It's just there's this cloud now. <clears throat> it's darkened it so that the truth of God's Word doesn't get through. You know, and there's so many times where I've tried to counsel people. They come to me and say, hey, okay, I'm having problems with my marriage. And, and, and you know, and they're not believers. And, and I, I say, okay, what we need to do first is we need to deal with your spiritual state. We need to deal with who you are in Christ because there's, there's so much in God's Word that can help you. And they're like, well, don't talk to me about Jesus. I need help with my marriage. And I'm like, but that's where help with your marriage is going to come from, you know. And so, and then sometimes, well, just tell me something that is practical. So I'll share something from God's Word. Like, no, that's not going to do it. Like, no, that really does help people if they use it. And like, you know, because they, they're dark and their mind is clouded. They can't see that. Like you think about, uh, you know, dealing, you know, forgiveness. You talk to someone, okay, well... This person, you know, they, they sinned against you and they confess that sin. They ask you to forgive them and you won't forgive them. Well, I, I just don't think they've suffered enough. Oh, no, that's the Bible says. If they've confessed their sin and asked your forgiveness, you have to forgive them. Right? And, and so th- those things, they, they can't understand that. And it doesn't illumine their mind. So the unbeliever's mind has been darkened so that he or she doesn't reason according to the truth of Scripture. They do reasoning, plenty. I mean, you read philosophy and everything. They think all this stuff through, but without the truth of Scripture. Their thinking and decision-making do not operate by biblical principles. And so for us to take away on this, how do you drive darkness from a room? You flood it with light, right? Flip the switch on, light comes out, and darkness is gone. It's, it's like, and I know it's just a picture, but it's like it pushes the darkness out of the room. So I ask you and me, do you flood your mind with the light of Scripture to drive out your old thinking processes and then fill it with the new thinking processes? Do you do that? Think of your, your mind as, you know, at one time it was that dark room, okay, the light of Scripture drives the darkness out. And there's still little little shadows here and there that need to be driven out. Flood your mind with Scripture. Next phrase. So their mind is darkened. Verse, uh, their, their understanding is darkened. Verse 18. Now, they were also excluded from the life of God. They were excluded. They were alienated from God's gift of life. That's what he's talking about here. God's gift of life, that which he gives to us, the eternal life he gives us. They were excluded or alienated from that. And they remain alienated from it until they are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10, It is Christ Jesus who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel is what shines the light and that this is where life comes from, from Jesus. And so I ask you, 
if you have the life of God, is it obvious to other people? Or do they see you as just one of the other corpses around them? Is that what you look like? Is it obvious that you have life? So what's the cause of this alienation from God, from his life? The next phrase in verse 18. It's because of the ignorance that is in them. See, ignorance keeps them from understanding God's truth and God's will. Now, this isn't the innocent ignorance. Like sometimes, like, you know, if, if they never put a speed limit sign up, you might be ignorant of what the speed limit is there, okay? You didn't know. You know, so you try your best. Okay, well, slow down just in case. Okay, that's an innocent ignorance. But this we're talking about is a willful ignorance. They openly suppress God's truth. Jim read that to us earlier. They suppress God's truth. It's willful willful ignorance. But spiritual ignorance shrinks as you learn God's word. Isn't it true? Those of you who have been reading your Bibles and you study your Bibles, haven't you found that? They're like, wow, I never knew that. And as we we learn, that ignorance goes away. And so we can use big words like what I'm going to use in a little bit, you know, propitiation. Okay, so a bunch of you have figured out you know what that is. Okay, you know, at one time we were all ignorant of that word. Okay, and then we learned it, right? And of course, we're talking about all of God's word, not just particular words. But so, why do they reject God's word? Why do they suppress God's truth? We'll look at the next phrase there at the end of verse eighteen. It's because of the hardness of their heart. Because of the hardness of their heart. The heart, he refers to our inner man where the thinking and understanding will occur. And Paul's using both these terms, heart and mind, and then also a related term, understanding. The the Hebrews thought in terms of the heart is really where the thinking goes on. And that's kind of fascinating because there there is, I think I've told you this before, my doctor was telling me, there's brain tissue, you know, all along our gut. You know, why why do you get butterflies? And you feel it here. You don't feel it here. You feel it here. Why? Because it's the brain tissue, okay? And it's just fascinating because the, the Hebrews, they, they thought in terms of, you know, the heart, you know, actually, literally, the, the bowels, is where all of your thinking takes place. Well, then the Greeks come along, well, no, it's up here. And Paul says, well, it's really the whole inner man, however you want to picture that. So you might use the term heart and use the term mind. Heart is the inner man where thinking and understanding and where the will occurs, where we decide, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But what I was saying at the beginning is that God's truth is not able to penetrate a stony heart. Like, oh, no, John, that's God's truth. It, no, it can't penetrate a stony heart. But you see, what happens is that when a person puts their trust in Jesus... That hard, stony heart is replaced by one that is tender, sensitive to God. That great New New Covenant passage, Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, He promises, I will give you a new heart. I 
I will remove the heart of stone. He, he takes this heart of stone out and he gives us a heart of flesh. And that doesn't mean sinful flesh, but flesh like, you know, it's sensitive. It, it, you can feel. And so when God's word and God's spirit imp- works on it, we feel it. Okay. Jeremiah 24, 7, God said, I will give them what? Do you remember that? We used to sing it. A heart to know me. I will give them a heart to know me. You see, that's what he's talking about. That's what this new heart, it knows God. It wants to know God. And so the way for us to to stop doing and stop being and acting like the way we used to be is this. Keep your heart tender by pursuing a deeper relationship with God. You see, as you, you keep cultivating and deepening that relationship with God, I mean, this is the Philippians 3 we've, we've talked about, right? That I may know Him, right? And as you do that, what used to be true of you, even the shadows of it will, will go away. That hardness of heart. And so, let's now, as we go to the next slide, uh, see this, uh, how the progression takes place, or even a digression. Um, and we're going to look at it backwards, because this is kind of the way that it will work. So, hard hearts toward God caused ignorance of God's truth. That ignorance caused them to be alienated from the life that God gives. Being alienated, their minds were darkened. You see, it just, you know, it's getting you know, worse and worse. Those darkened minds then led to walking in futility. So that's who they were. That's and who the current unbeliever is. So... We said first, don't walk like unbelievers. Second, you no longer have the unbeliever's nature. So, number three, don't imitate the unbeliever's conduct. So you're not like them, spiritual status, verses 17 and 18. So don't act like them, verse 19. Okay. So he's actually going to get into some, some categories of sins to show what he's talking about. Their conduct. This is the conduct that naturally flows from their spiritual condition. What we have, verse 19 flows from who they are, verses 17 and 18. You know, and back when Jim was reading for us in Romans 1, if, if we'd had him keep on going through Romans 2 and 3, we would have encountered not just the immoral pagan, that's the, the person that Paul was talking about and what Jim read for us, but Paul then, as you remember from Romans, the next thing he gets into is like, you know, because then you've got moral pagans standing over there, uh-huh, uh-huh, right? And, of course, then the Jews over there, too, mm-hmm, I agree. So then Paul goes to the moral pagan. Oh, you think you're okay? And so he shows that the moral pagan, the one who tries to do right, no, you're under sin, too. You know, and, then of course, the Jews standing over there, mm-hmm, and he's, oh, okay, let's get to the Jew, and so then he talks about, oh, Jews, too, are under sin. And then, so chapters 1 through 3, what Paul is doing there in Romans is saying that we all are under sin. Everyone who's ever been born except for Jesus is under sin. All of us. And that's his point in chapter 1 through 323 of Romans. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 19 is he's addressing every unbeliever, not just 
the immoral pagan. So whether they are openly immoral, whether they're outwardly moral or outwardly religious, Paul is talking about them. It's possible that as you've read this, as I have in the past, verse 19, and I think, oh, he's talking about that Romans 1 guy. And he is, but not just him. And I'm going to show you how these are broader categories than we sometimes think. So he's talking about unbelievers as a group, as a class, okay, as opposed to a believer. Okay. And so when he says in a minute here, every kind of, he's not saying every unbeliever participates in every kind of impurity. He's saying as a class, they cover it all. So here he now uses another description for their hardened hearts. Instead of, the, I was using that term for stony hearts, Paul says they have become callous. And a callous is a, a buildup of, of, of hard, thickened skin that, is less sensitive to touch, you know, and some of you, you may not have any calluses on your hands like those of us who like to work in our gardens and stuff or work on cars or whatever. But more than likely, unless you're real big on using pumice, your heel is a callus, okay? For most of us, that's true. So that's, it's just a big callus, okay? It's, you know, hard, thick and skin. And that's a good thing because if you have to be barefoot, it's nice (laughs) that your heel is not going to get punctured by the little rocks and stuff you step on outside. Unbelievers are not sensitive toward God and His Word. So one way we can look at their heart is that it's made of stone. Another way to look at it here that He's doing here is that it's like their heart it has this, you know, this big callus all around it. And so as God's Word comes and, and tries to convict them, they're not feeling it. It's just like, you know, on your callus or you, you, your heel. You know, you can kind of tap it lightly and you really can't feel much, right? And that's His point. They're not sensitive to God and His Word. So they choose to disobey God's moral requirements. They don't obey His Word. And so Paul illustrates what he's talking about here, this, what this callousness looks like with these three sin categories. So the next phrase, verse 19, and they, have, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality. Now, sensuality is a sensual appetite that has no boundaries. It's licentiousness. It's unrestrained desire. So think here more broadly than just the, the, the sexual aspect, the lustful aspect of sensuality we normally think of. It includes that. And oftentimes this word is used for that. It is, it is in Romans 1. Okay, But what he's talking about here with sensuality is broader It's this unrestrained desire. So it includes lust. It includes drunkenness. And it also was used uh, of a man who just hit somebody in public for the fun of it. You know, we've got that going on in our society where, you know, thugs are going around. They just hit people. And, you know, that nothing under the sun, right? It's unrestrained desire. It's like, I want to do it. I'm going to do it. That's what he's talking about with sensuality here. It's like, I feel like doing it, so I'm going to do it. And so the way we should respond, and there was a sense in which we were that way. We may not have done any of these things I've listed, but when we sin, that's what we're doing, right? It's like, I want to sin, so I'm going to sin. And that's the sensuality he's talking about. So the way to combat that and to drive out those the shadows of our former life, don't let your desires lead you. 
In other words, you know, when you hear, you know, TV movies or whatever, you know, follow your heart. No, 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 no. Don't follow your heart. That's the problem. Bring your desires in line with God's desires. Work to do that. Well, how do, you, well, how do I know what God wants? Well, how do you know? You go read, right? It's right here in the Word. We need to know this. Remember, illumine our mind, flood our mind with His Word so we know what His desires are and say, okay, this is what God wants. Okay, that's what I'm going to want. Next phrase. They've given themselves over to sensuality for the practicing of every kind of impurity. Practice of every kind of impurity. This word practice actually talked about your work, your occupation. See, that's the idea behind it. It's like their sinful practice is so intentional, it's like it's their occupation. And what's your job, sinner? You know, I mean, that really, that's, that's what he's saying here. And this word impurity... It refers, again, to a broad range of moral uncleanness. Uh, And so, as a group, unbelievers pursue every kind of impurity. So, you take all sinners together and you can find everything, right? Not necessarily everything in one particular person, but as a group. Every sin is represented among them. And so, I ask us, is there any practice in your life that is morally impure? Replace it with a habit that is morally pure. One of the things we're going to see as we get further on into chapter 4 is the idea of put off and put on. What we're talking about right now is, is putting off, but I'm giving us some hints of putting on, right? So we're, we're moving in that direction, okay? And so if there's, there's a habit that shouldn't be there, you do work at putting it off, but you have to replace it with something else that's pure. You know, and so if you normally say that you're you're you're, you're given to anger, every time I I see him, oh, I'm angry. Okay, what you do is train yourself that every time you see him, you pray for him, or every time you see him, you speak kindly to him and you try to minister to him. You see, you're putting something pure and godly in the place of the ungodly. Okay, the last phrase. For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Greediness is someone who says, I want more. I mean, that one's easy, right? I want more. I I know none of us have ever been there, right? We used to be very much that. We sometimes still may have some leanings that way. But these people, they they covet what what other people have. They're greedy for more. They're selfish. They look out for their own advantage. You know, so selfishness is a good way to understand this word. So think about what is it that you're greedy for, something that's that you shouldn't be. It might be a good thing, but you shouldn't be greedy for it, selfishly pursuing it, and replace that with serving God and others. Kind of the example I just gave you. You know, you're replacing it with something good. Okay. Change your pursuit. So, if the traits that that Paul talked about in verses 17 through 19 describe you, and I don't mean just that, well, there's a little bit of that left I'm still working on. I don't mean that. This is you. And it is some of you. Then I want you to listen to the gospel, and I want to go back to Romans 
and read from chapter 3 what Paul is going to conclude from that whole discussion, what Jim had read, and then about the, the moral pagan and also the religious Jew. So Romans 3, I want you to hear the gospel here. But now apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. In other words, it's not keeping the law. The law said you find righteousness in Jesus, in believing in Jesus. That's what the law is doing. It's pointing you to him. And he says here, in case you all missed it, In these first three chapters, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thus ends the section on sin. Now, beautiful words. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's how we are justified before God. That's how God declares us righteous. We have believed in Christ. We trusted in His work and we received His redemption. Verse 25, Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a, and here's that big word, propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. You see, what he's saying there is that God says, okay, my, my law has shown that you are all under sin. You are all guilty. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God comes through him for you. Because Jesus paid our penalty, didn't he, on the cross. And as we trust in him, the righteousness that he had and earned becomes ours. And God applies that to our account. He says, now you are justified. Now you are redeemed. I have bought you out from under my wrath. My son paid your penalty. And I declare you righteous. If you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ, I call upon you, hear this gospel. And put your trust in Christ right now. Trust in Him alone to save you from your sins. Trust only in His righteousness, not your own. And for those of us who have already done that, we should rest in the fact that we have been justified by God. We have to remind ourselves of that, don't we? Because we fail, we fail, we fail. We have to keep going back to the cross. Remember, oh yeah, God just He declared me righteous because I trust in Christ. And then... Work to diligently replace your sinful habits. Those that came from your old life, with replace them now with Christ-like habits. Because that's where he's going with this. Put off and put on. Okay. As we come to the table, I want us to think on that word propitiation from Romans 3.25. He said it was Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And if you don't know that word yet, this It's real simple. It's a sacrifice for sin that satisfied God. It satisfied His holy requirement. The law demanded that sin 
be met with death, be punished by death. And Jesus was punished and he died, punished for us. And so let us think on that and what he has done for us as we meditate at this, mo- at this time around the table.